The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this program comes from Sacred Threads, a center which provides opportunities for people of all faith traditions to explore and enrich their spiritual journeys. Check out their programs and offerings at sacredthreadcenter.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations, a weekly podcast introducing you to some of the cutting-edge thinkers and ideas shaping the 21st century. We look forward to your participation in the conversation via our website, spiritualityhealth.com. My guest today is Damien Eccles. He was falsely accused of murder and spent nearly 18 years on death row, much of that in solitary confinement. In 2011, he was exonerated and released from prison. Eccles is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Life After Death, and co-authored with his wife, Lori Davis, Yours for Eternity, a love story on death row. And they produced the documentary, West of Memphis, chronicling his story. Damien was featured in the March-April 2014 issue of Spirituality and Health magazine in a piece by Sandra A. Miller called Spellbound. Damien Eccles, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you being on the show. I've read in other interviews with you that you really don't want to relive your past, but rather focus on what's next for you, moving into the future. And I want to you know, agree, agree with that, and I, and I want to honor that, and not dwell on your incarceration and the horrors of living on death row. And I'm not even all that interested in this conversation about the exoneration and your release from jail and all of that. My interest is in the wisdom you found through the practices you adopted and how these spiritual practice really turned your time in prison more from a imprisonment to a almost like a monastery. You created a, a sense of the monastic for yourself in solitary confinement. Am I on the right path with that? That's exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, when I first arrived in prison, I met a, uh, a Zen Buddhist monk who told me he used those exact words he said either you can sit in here and rot or you can turn your cell into a monastery and keep growing so that's exactly what i set out to do in the time that i was in there and you're talking about kabutsu malone yes actually the guy who told me that was a student of his and i met kabutsu malone through him whenever a person was executed the only person allowed to be with them was their spiritual advisor you know no family no friends so when this guy was executed i met his then teacher who later became my teacher that was a third person not kabutsu malone 
Yes. Eventually, what happened is I developed a relationship with Shoto Harada Roshi, who is probably one of the most renowned living Zen masters, if not the most well-known Zen master in modern-day Japan. And he would make trips back and forth from Japan to the prison. And eventually, I received ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism, which was the same tradition that used to train the samurai in ancient Japan. And that really seemed to fit your need in prison. Oh, it did. It sounds kind of odd, but it provided a sort of structure and focus and something for me to keep my gaze fixed on. You know, you're in this environment where there's sort of no growth, no momentum, and you really do start to decay inside, degenerate inside, unless you keep striving for something. So that gave me something to structure my life around and keep pushing forward with. It seemed to me from what I've read that it wasn't simply an environment that didn't promote growth. It was an environment that was designed to, I mean, demolish you as much as possible, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. Exactly, yeah. And you found in Zen sort of a way to resist all of that, ultimately triumph over it. Not just that, but for me, my first love has always been, ever since I was a child, has always been Western Hermeticism, what people call magic. That's what I fell head over heels in love with ever since I was a child. What the Zen practice did for me was allowed me to see sort of things that bridged Eastern and Western traditions. And it was also when I combined the Zen with the Western meditation practices, it was almost like pouring jet fuel on a fire. You know, it felt like my spiritual growth was propelled forward at an unprecedented rate compared to anything I'd ever tried before. So I'm intrigued by your interest in Western esoteric tradition, even when you were a kid. I share that interest, and it hasn't left me. I'm still very interested in it. You know, I'm in my mid-60s. How did you find the Western esoteric tradition when you were just a kid? I, it would have probably been through the public library. You know, I, I came from a very, very poor family, so we weren't really even even able to afford money for books, things like that. So almost all of my reading material came from the public library. And I discovered the Golden Dawn. I think I was about 12 years old. The Golden Dawn was a, a tradition of magicians in the late 1800s in England, and you had some of the greatest minds of the time who were members of this organization. You know, people like the poet W.B. Yeats or uh, Pamela Coleman-Smith, who did all the artwork for what we now think of as the modern-day tarot. What the goal of the Golden Dawn was, was they decided they wanted to look into every spiritual tradition in the world and strip away all the dogma, strip away all the belief, until you get to just the core practices. They wanted to figure out what works, why it works, how it works, and how we can make it work better how we can make it work stronger. So they, they went to the very core of all these different spiritual traditions, took what they found, and then combined them, sort of made an amalgamation of them. And it's unlike anything I've ever discovered out there before. It's sort of similar to Eastern traditions, but it's also different. You know, for example, in Eastern traditions, a lot of times people are familiar with the chakra system. Well, there's something very similar to that that you use in ceremonial magic, only there are only five energy centers instead of seven. There's slightly different colors and located in slightly different places in the body. But a lot of what you would do with those energy centers overlap. Right. Very, very similar systems. Maybe because, and I'm guessing at this point, but the Western magic tradition draws a lot on the Kabbalistic tradition of Judaism. And and in that tradition, sometimes it's 10 centers, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's five. There's a lot of variation and they were drawing on those things. I get it when you're a kid. It's exciting. It's romantic. It's sort of revolutionary if you are brought up in a more traditional Protestant environment, which I'm guessing you were. Is that a fair guess? Exactly. Yes. But you didn't outgrow it. You sort of grew into it. 
Oh, it's, it's like every single thing that I learned, it just made me want to learn more. You know, when I would discover some tiny little piece, say at the age of 14, it would just fuel my hunger even more. I wanted to know what else is possible, what else is out there. So instead of my interest diminishing over time, it really did drive me forward into learning more and more. I think also the culmination of that came from the fact that when I was in prison, um, it was all I had. You know, I didn't have yeah. medical care. I didn't have dental care. So there were times when I was really sick and times when I was in horrendous pain. And the only thing I had to rely on was meditation, energy work, and magic. And you use that, I know, at least one case, to heal nerve damage in your, your teeth. Exactly. Yeah, I'd been uh, severely beaten, and it had caused a lot of nerve damage in my mouth. And the pain just kept building and building over a period of two to three years. A lot of it was learned by trial and error. You know, I was given certain basic techniques. I also had a, a teacher named Stephen Mace in the Western tradition. He's written a bunch of books on magic, things like uh, Shaping Formless Fire. And he would give me all these different techniques and exercises that I would practice, but a lot of it was also simply through trial and error, having to figure out what worked. And if something didn't work, what was I not doing right? And you certainly had the time to do that. Was the Absolutely. prison open to providing you with material? I mean... Oh, no. No, they no. did They did everything they possibly could to hinder any sort of spiritual practice in there. For example, not only um, was I received ordination in the Zen tradition, but I also had a teacher in the Tibetan tradition, a Tibetan Lama, who would come to teach the guys on death row different practices, give us different transmissions. Her job, in essence, was to help you get ready to die. And when she would come to the prison, a lot of times they would make her stand outside the gate for three or four hours before they would let her in in hopes that she would just give up and go away. Not only do they not help you, but they do everything they possibly can to hinder you. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine for her, that might have been reminiscent of just trying to get into a monastery in the first place, where they would make yeah. you stand outside for days, if not weeks, uh -huh. if you were serious yeah. about it. I want to go back to something you said very briefly about the esoteric tradition. You mentioned, and I know I can't remember her first name, but Smith, who did the artwork for what you call this, the modern tarot deck. Are you talking about the Crowley deck? No, um, the Rider one Waite. that came right before his, the Rider Waite. Right. Yes, Pamela Coleman Smith. Originally, the reason we call it Rider Waite is because fellow magician in the Golden Dawn, A.E. Waite, sat down with Pamela Coleman Smith, and he described her the energy current that each card represents. And they worked together to figure out how can we best represent this energy current with a particular picture? How can we embody this wisdom in a photo? So they worked together and came up with the designs. She painted them entirely herself, but in the early years received almost no credit. We call it the Rider Weight because it was A.E. Weight, and the company who first published them was uh, called the Rider Company, and her name was completely chopped off, even though she was the one who did the vast majority of the work. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Oh, interesting. You also do artwork. What are you doing when you're doing that? Are you doing something similar to what Pamela Coleman-Smith was doing? 
it's what I do, but I think mine would be more similar to magicians like Austin Osmond Spare or uh, maybe Genesis Peorage, people in that vein. You know, I, I love the Golden Dawn, but as time passed on, I sort of leaned more and more towards chaos magic. Eventually, people began to experiment, and they realized that almost all belief systems work. All a belief system is, is a paradigm. So say, for example, you're doing magic in the Wiccan, the modern witchcraft pagan tradition, where you're using either ancient Egyptian or ancient Greek goddesses. Or you can do the Golden Dawn tradition, which relies very, very heavily on Judeo-Christian vibrations, names, words for different aspects of the Hebrew God. All these traditions, they all work. So with chaos magic, what they found is that you can sort of step back and forth. You don't have to subscribe or dedicate yourself to any one particular belief system in order for this process to work. You can sort of step back and forth between all of them. So eventually they started to do away with that and just work on forming sigils, forming talismans that don't have any connection to any past traditions and charging them with energy to bring about a result. And they found that they work just as well as anything ancient does. One of my favorite stories about a magician was how he designed this talisman to make his house seem haunted forgot what it was for, thumbtacked it to his wall, and then couldn't figure out where all the weird banging and (laughs) rattling noises was coming from at night. But that's sort of where my artwork goes. I started designing all these sigils and talismans that look like they're very old, but in in actuality, they are entirely of my own creation. And I may do one, for example, say for prosperity or for protection or to increase psychic insight, whatever it is, I'll design a talisman for that and then focus on charging it. So that whenever someone buys the artwork, they are sort of buying whatever the talisman was for. I guess for me, you could say that the artwork itself is secondary. For me, my first love, what I focus on the most is magic. And the artwork itself is almost a side effect of the magic and the love of magic. So let me just try to focus on a couple of them. Since you've had the Zen training and the Western esoteric training, I it was reminded of something that Carl Jung said in one of his books, that Westerners shouldn't just grab onto Eastern religions wholesale and try to make themselves into Hindus or Buddhists or whatever, Shinto practitioners, that they should really, there's a difference between Easterners and Westerners, and we should work within our own cultural tradition. Do you find that to be the case? I do. And it's weird for me to say that just because, you know, like I said, I've been ordained in an Eastern tradition. But I guess what I found through the years is that we automatically, when we want something outside of the very shallow things we were handed as a child, like especially in my upbringing, you know, a fundamentalist, hardcore Christian background, we automatically think we have to go to another culture to get something better, to get something higher, to get something more fulfilling. So we turn towards the East and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think also people should become more and more aware that we have these amazing, rich, equally beautiful spiritual traditions that are very deeply rooted here in the West that are of our own culture that we can turn to and receive just as much out of. I would like to promote that more just because most people don't realize that. Also, you have propaganda that was taught to us for so long. You know, the Western traditions are demonic and they're of the devil. And even if you don't know you're worshiping the devil, you're secretly being led astray. Right. You know, so that has sort of scared a lot of people away from Western traditions. And that never happened with the Eastern traditions. So people feel that they're a little safer. But in actuality, it's the same thing. I'm hoping that people who are listening to this are going to be intrigued enough to follow up on some of the things that that we've been talking about because there's so much to learn. 
I want to shift in the couple minutes we have left just to your own personal spirituality, your own personal daily practice. What do you do now? The core of my practice, the core of all Western ceremonial practice, I think, revolves around what's called the middle pillar exercise. Once again, it's very similar to using the chakras in the Eastern traditions, but what you do on a daily basis is spend time putting as much chi, energy, ruach, prana, whatever name you want to call it, focusing as much of that as you possibly can into your energy centers to get them as activated and fired up as you possibly can. Not only does it just make you feel better mentally, emotionally, psychically, even physically, it opens you up to be more receptive to different kinds of energy, but you can also use it to manifest the life that you want to live. You know, when people think of power in the West, for some reason they come to think of destruction. You know, they think of military or someone with big muscles. But in in actuality, true power is creativity. It's being able to create, not destroy. So it's about taking this energy that you're focusing on every single day and using it to create and shape the reality and the life that you want to live. So is this what you teach in your workshops now? It is, absolutely. And it's a little hard just because there's a lot to cram in. This is years and years and years of study. It's kind of hard just to get beyond even the basic techniques and practices and and get into deeper things. But that's what I eventually want to do. Right now, I teach people mostly the very basic beginning practices. Eventually, I'd like to evolve beyond that and find people who love it as much as I do and want to take it into the next phase. What you're describing when you went back and, and told us a little bit about chaos magic, what you're describing now, it sounds to me that, I mean, that the fastest growing group of people, spiritually oriented people in the United States at the moment, are people who call themselves, I don't like the term, but spiritually but not religious, or what I call spiritually independent. People who don't mind crossing borders between traditions and don't want to be stuck on or hung up with one specific tradition. Who comes to these workshops? Are they generally spiritual seekers? They are. It's actually all over the map. I've had people fly in from as far away as Sweden to come take the classes. So a lot of times it's people who may have read my books or saw documentaries about me and became interested in the case and come almost as rubberneckers, sort of, to (laughs) people who are very hardcore interested in this thing. Uh, You know, for example, I did some yoga classes with a yoga teacher named Sean Korn, and it was sort of a 50% yoga, 50% magic session, a day-long workshop that we would do. So people may come who were just interested in learning about yoga from her, and then they hear what I'm talking about, and it sparks something in them, so they start taking you know, just my classes, my workshops, the thing that I do, when they may have only been initially interested in just doing a little physical yoga. So it really does draw all sorts of different people. Where is it taking you, you think? All these years of practice, what's happening to you? You know, one of the things that you, you practice in Zen practice, a lot of it is about keeping your mind focused, you know, realizing how much your mind wanders and constantly and consistently bringing it back to the present moment so that you don't miss your life. What I discovered is a lot of times you have to sit for many, many years before you start to see any real progress of that happening. Well, whenever I started practicing, focusing more on the Western traditions, it's not really paying very much attention to that. It's paying more attention to other things, you know, for example, energy circulation, very much like Taoists would do. But what happens is you get the same results that you would get from the Zen practice almost as a side effect. It just makes you more content. 
It makes you so that you can focus on the present moment in your life, not always looking back towards the past, not always looking back towards the future, but actually living in the moment. It does that, and it also allows you to literally shape the reality that you want to experience. You know, it's, it's, it takes long, a long time to go into, but when we think of reality, we think it's one solid thing. And in actuality, reality is more like an onion. You know, there's layers to it, subtle layers and dense layers. For example, our thoughts. We know we think, but you can't weigh a thought. You can't show someone a thought or see what a thought right. smells like. So that's a very ethereal aspect of reality. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you do have the densest, coarsest part. You know, our physical bodies, our cars, our houses, our money. It's all, it's it's all, all intertwined. It shapes something on the higher levels. It eventually manifests on the lower levels. That's where the, the old phrase, as above, so below, comes right. from. This is fascinating, Damien. My guest today on Essential Conversations was Damien Eccles. You can learn more about his work at his website, DamienEccles.com. Damien, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please visit our website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine, download the app for this podcast, and find out all kinds of other interesting things that the magazine is doing. Our sponsor this week is the Sacred Thread Center, providing opportunities for spiritual exploration for people of all faiths and traditions and none. Please visit them at their website, sacredthreadcenter.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.